Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. As we continue to make our way through book one of the Psalms, we come this morning to Psalm 11. where David is being given some despairing counsel, we might say. And um, the people who are speaking to him are seeing the world in a light that has nothing to do with the Lord. They're not thinking about his sovereignty. They're not thinking about the fact that even as wickedness is flourishing in the land, the Lord is still sovereign. So David is hearing this counsel and he's responding to it. And he's reflecting on the Lord's sovereign reign and the ultimate promise that the wicked will perish in judgment and that the righteous will behold his face. So we come again, Psalm 11, we're going to begin by reading from verse 1. We'll read down uh, to the end of the psalm. Of course, this is Psalm of David. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, beginning in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked, Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, Your Word teaches us that there are many things going on that our eyes do not see. Even when we see much evil, much 
devastation by wicked and godless ideologies. Your throne in heaven has been established and is fixed and will never be moved. And nothing that happens on earth happens apart from your sovereign decree. That even the evil that takes place in the world ultimately accomplishes your good and perfect plans. And those who commit the evil will be punished for their evil. You uphold righteousness. And in your appointed day, you will do away with all wickedness. And you will cause the righteous, those who have joined themselves to the King, to shine like refined gold. As all of the peoples are plotting in vain, you laugh and you speak your decree. You have set your king on Zion, your holy hill, and your kingdom will never perish. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes of faith to see what the naked eye cannot see, to see what your word has promised, to be able to see through faith the reigning of Christ now so that ultimately we will see him face to face. You would strengthen us, Lord, to be able to walk in faithfulness even in the midst of great afflictions. I ask that you would do this for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1935 and, and 36, the New Testament scholar and theologian J. Gresham Machen, who if you were at Sunday school, you learned a little bit about, and if you continue to come to Sunday school, we will be doing a, a whole study on Machen and his particular conflict with Protestant liberalism in the early 20th century. But during the years uh, 1935 and, and 36, Machen recorded a series of popular radio addresses that systematically taught through the basics of, of Christianity and the gospel. But in his very first address, he spoke about why such talks were needed. And in doing so, he described the current and global situation of his day, the, the, the cultural situation of his day, and he described it as a present emergency. The world's changing. There's all kinds of chaos that's causing all kinds of people anxiety. The world in his day seemed to be undergoing social and political upheaval. 
America was, of course, just coming out of the Great Depression. And Machen, in describing the present emergency that everyone was so concerned about, said many things. One of the things he said is that everywhere are to be found unemployment and distress. Almost everywhere there are wars or rumors of wars. Later in the same address, after describing the rising influence of the tyrannical powers of Russia and Germany and Italy, the rumors of wars that would indeed break out into another great global war. As he was describing these rising powers, he outlined some of the cultural changes that were occurring. And and if you hadn't known that Machen was speaking in the 1930s, you would think that he's speaking about our own day. He said, civil and religious liberty are being treated openly as though they have been merely a passing phase in human life. Well enough in their day, but now out of date. In America, the same tendencies are mightily at work. Everywhere there rises before our eyes the specter of a society where security if it is attained at all, will be attained at the expense of freedom. Where the security that is attained will be the security of fed beasts in a stable. And where all the high aspirations of humanity will have been crushed by an all-powerful state. People were concerned. They had anxiety. It was becoming obvious that the end of the First World War would not bring about a lasting peace. The values that were at one time upheld by prior generations were rapidly eroding. There was a lack of trust and confidence in the government. And these were the kinds of things people wanted addressed. This is what we need an answer to. They thought that these things should be the focus of all of their attention. And surely, if a man as wise and as intelligent as Machen was going to give some address in light of the present emergency, This was what his focus should be on. All of these societal changes are what he needs to speak about. We need a word on these matters. We need solutions. We need answers. There is economic changes that are taking place and we need an economic message. Machen said he was not going to do that. Rather, he said, I'm going to talk to you about God and about an unseen world. He wanted to address the root of the matter, the cause of all of the present emergencies that had arisen. 
He said, the thing that brought the emergency upon us was something in the realm of the unseen things. It was an evil that was found within the soul of man. That's the root cause. That's what's bringing about all of this panic and social upheaval and uncertainty. It was a spiritual matter. It was a matter of sin and evil and a spiritual conflict that long predated Machen's day. See, Machen was not operating in or thinking in categories of the world. He wasn't evaluating the present state of things through the lens of what could be seen, but rather through the lens of what was unseen. He was viewing the world with the eyes of faith and evaluating all things through the lens of the Word of God. And the most important subject that people needed to hear about, as he saw it, was the subject of God and God's works and God's sovereign rule over all things and His sovereign plan to glorify Himself both in the salvation of His people and the judgment of the wicked. That's what they needed to hear. And that's what you need to hear today. Every single generation is going to face all kinds of social upheaval, of theological debates and splits, of wars and rumors of wars. But the message of Christianity never changes. The answer to all of the ills of the world is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the Gospel of Christ. It is calling men to submit themselves to the God they've rejected and they must know Him. In the psalm that we're in this morning, David is thinking much the same way. There is a present emergency. We don't know exactly what it is. You can look at different parts of David's life. You could point to different occasions where it seems like everything is crumbling down around him. We don't know exactly what's going on here, but we know there's a present emergency. And he's being counseled to act on the basis of the disasters and the evil that surrounds him. As those who are close to Him look around at the world and they see all of the wicked prospering, they're in a state of panic. Their anxiety is high. And they think that it's just going to be best to retreat and to save themselves. 
There's nothing they can do about it. There's nothing that's going to change. They're hopeless. So the only thing that we should do is abandon ship. Go hide in a cave somewhere. But David, for himself, is viewing the present emergency through the eyes of faith. The world looks one way. But David knows who God is. David knows what God has said. David knows that God's Word can't be broken. David has received the promise that one of his offspring will reign from his throne forever and ever. So no matter how much the wicked appear to be prospering in the moment, their days are numbered. He's viewing the world through the lens of the Word of God and faith. And because of that, the way he evaluates the world, the way he speaks to the world, the way he lives in the world, is going to be very different from those who are around him, from those who are counseling him. And it is the same for the Christian. When you view the world through the lens of the Gospel of Christ, when you evaluate what's going on around you through the lens of the Word of God, you're going to come to some very different conclusions from those who don't believe. Or even believers who are acting in unbelief. Your conclusions will be very different. And so as we look at this psalm this morning, I want to unpack this particular truth for you some more. And I want to do so by giving you three points about seeing with the eyes of faith. We'll look first at the logic of faith. And then we'll look second at the Lord of faith. And then third, the longing of faith. This past week, a a very faithful pastor and brother, Harry Reeder, pastored for a long time, Briarwood Presbyterian in Birmingham, tragically died in in a car wreck. He was a master teacher and preacher. And he had the gift to remember every single person's name that he ever heard. Congregation is huge. It's like 4,000 people. He knows everybody there by name. I mean, I, I struggle to remember some of your names. <laughs> I'm still trying to, to learn them. And he knows them. He was a faithful preacher of the Word of God, a master teacher. He loved alliteration. I thought that at best that we'd, we'd honor him today by using some alliteration. So we'll look first at the logic of faith and then the Lord of faith and then the longing of faith. So let's think for a moment about the logic of faith. Christian faith, by its very nature, works with a different logic from that of unbelief. And it has to. It has a different starting 
point. It has different presuppositions. It has different convictions and conclusions. Just to use an obvious example. The unbelieving mind starts with the assumption that no one can rise from the dead. And the believing mind starts with the assumption that yes, no one can rise from the dead unless God does it. And He has. That's a very different starting point. And so faith is going to have a different logic from that of unbelief. And in the psalm, David's counselors, those who are speaking the words at the end of verse 1 down to the end of verse 3, his counselors, they may be believers. We're not 100% sure. They may be believers. They may be devoted to Yahweh. But at least here, they're acting and thinking like unbelievers. Even true believers can do that. You know that, right? You can be a believer in Christ. But whenever you sin, you're acting like an unbeliever. And you can think about the world like an unbeliever thinks about the world. This may be something similar here in the psalm. He has counselors who are thinking about the world like those who don't have faith in the Lord. But whatever their spiritual state is, David's counselors are seeing the kingdom. They're seeing Israel and they're seeing the wicked flourish within it. As I said earlier, we don't know exact, exactly the time when this psalm was written or what the circumstances were. It could have been in the days of King Saul or in the days of Absalom or some other time. But regardless of the exact occasion, as the counselors, as, as those who are close to David and who are in his ear are looking around at the world, all they see is disaster on every side. And it leads them to despair. They have no hope at all. There's no bright side. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. It's just darkness. The wicked are prospering. They are devouring the righteous. And these counselors see no end to it. And so they tell David, they say to his soul, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Now, this could be a literal description of warfare that David is engaged in. But more likely, this warlike description is a metaphor for the kinds of destructive words and scheming and ideologies that are tearing the very fabrics of society apart and that aim to do harm to anyone who stands for righteousness. 
It's very similar to what we read in Psalm 64, verse 3, where David there described the wicked as those who wet their tongues like swords and who aim bitter words like arrows. The war that is being waged is one of competing belief systems. And the belief system of the wicked is destroying everything in society. Verse 3 says that the foundations are destroyed, which refers to the laws and the customs and the institutions that a society is built upon. They're, They're all being destroyed. Everything is a target for them. It's the same idea that you find when God pronounces judgment against the wicked rulers of Psalm 82, who in the context are showing partiality towards the unjust. And He says that because of them, because of all of their wicked ways, all of their scheming, all of their unjust ruling, they're walking in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. The very bedrock of civilization is being chipped away. What society is built upon is perverted. Ideas are spreading and the wicked are uttering godless ideologies that are manifesting themselves in destructive behaviors among the people all throughout the land. That's typically typically how societal decay begins. There's some belief. There's some idea. Some doctrine that begins to spread. And it creates the fruit of ungodliness. We see it even today. The ideas of sexual liberation and freedom that were sown decades ago that promotes the goodness of promiscuity, pornography, of every manner of immorality, all of these ideas have eroded the foundations of society, tearing families apart and producing all kinds of relational chaos between men and women. And for David's counselors, as they look around and they see all of this evil spreading, they despair. What can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, David, there's no hope. This is how the world will be forever. And so the only solution is to flee. But faith never despairs. As I said earlier, it operates with a very different logic. When David hears those words, he cannot subscribe to them. He can't be in agreement. He's looking 
at the same world. He's seeing the same stuff going on. He sees the things that are lamentable. He lifts up his own lamentations to God. He sees the wicked flourishing and he's often the target of their unjust ways. But he doesn't despair. And when he hears these words, he asks, how can you say these things? How can you say these things to my soul? For him, this hopelessness does not logically follow from the prosperity of the wicked. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. In the Lord, I take refuge. We'll look at why this statement is important in just a moment, but here I just want you to recognize the logic of faith. Trusting in the Lord means that you are going to arrive at very different conclusions about about the direction that the world is moving in as well as its ultimate outcome from those who don't know the Lord and who don't trust in His Word. You and an unbeliever can be looking at the same exact evil, the same world, the same injustice, the same war, the same economic collapse, the same societal decay, the same death. But because you've believed the Gospel, because you have faith, you have the eyes of faith. What you draw as an implication, as the meaning of this, is radically different from the unbelieving mind. Whereas the unbelieving mind sees death and is hopeless before it, the believing mind sees death and yet also sees the one who has thrust his spear into its heart so that it's bleeding out and coming to an end. The believer sees death as a defeated foe. Whereas the unbelieving mind sees the wicked plotting and civilizations crumbling and despairs over what tomorrow may bring, the believing mind sees the sovereign king working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so he knows that the way of the wicked will perish. This is not how things will remain for eternity. Faith has a logic that takes into account the things that are unseen and the decrees of God that are fixed in heaven and so it never despairs because of the object of its hope. Which leads us secondly to consider the Lord of faith. The Lord of faith. The Lord is the object of our faith. 
And because He's the object, because He's the One we trust in, and He has spoken, and His Word has revealed His works in the world and the plans He's working out in it, we may look around and see much evil, but we don't despair and we're not to be overcome with anxiety because we know that the Lord as King will save and will judge at His appointed time. There is nothing that is taking place that is outside of His sovereign hand. He doesn't overlook evil. And He will not let His righteous servants perish forever. As we read last week from Psalm 10, verse 14, the Lord does see and He notes mischief and vexation. And here in Psalm 11, in the midst of much mischief, David is looking to the Lord as his sovereign king. He says the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord reigns. The presence of evil does not disprove, nor does it diminish His reign. It's not as if He's just sort of sitting in heaven and wishing that everything was better down here and wishing that He could fix these things, but He, he just can't. And He can't because he's, he's given man free will and He can't touch it. He's, his, his hands are tied behind His back. He doesn't sit on His throne as a helpless deity. Even the wickedness of man, we know from His Word, is ultimately used by God to accomplish His good and perfect purposes. One could think of how God preserved the sons of Israel from a deadly famine during the days of Joseph. How did that happen? Joseph was sold into slavery by his wicked brothers. Now that's pretty bad. You know, your, your own brothers do something that harmful, that evil to you? They wanted to kill him. And then they decide, we'll sell him into slavery. That, that's how good Joseph was being treated. That's the level of evil he was enduring. He was as good as dead to his brothers and his father thought he was dead. This was evil. And yet, Psalm 105 verse 17 says that in this very act, God was sending a man, namely Joseph, ahead of them. There's a famine that's going to be deadly and it's going to kill people who remain living in the land of Canaan. And if the children of Israel don't find a place to have a ref refuge, they're going to die. What does God do? 
he uses the evil of Joseph's evil brothers to bring about the salvation of the children of Israel to uphold his righteous word, to uphold his promises that he would cause the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to flourish and to multiply, to fill the earth, to be as numerous as the stars of heaven. That was his word. It can't be broken. Well, what about all this evil that's taking place? It accomplishes his will. And they're held accountable. But one could think of Christ who in the predetermined plan of God was crucified by the hands of wicked men and by those very wounds we are healed. The cross wasn't an accident. The cross, as Peter says, was determined by God from before the foundations of the earth. And what happens? Men commit tremendous evil. And it's through that evil that God works the reconciliation of the world. They're held accountable. Judgment comes upon them. And yet God, even through the wickedness of man, accomplishes His good will to bring about the salvation of His people. Now friends, the presence of evil is no proof of God's absence. He is still and always, has been and always will be carrying out His sovereign rule on earth. He has always reigned from heaven, even prior to the incarnation of the Son of God. The Son reigned from heaven. It's not as if He wasn't reigning in the days of David and now He's reigning after the resurrection. No, He reigned then. He reigned in the days of His incarnation and humiliation, and He reigns now and will reign forever. What changed, what changed in the incarnation and in the exaltation of Christ is that whereas before the Son reigned as the eternal Son, He now reigns as the eternal Son who is also man. That's what's changed. Which is to say that now, from heaven, this is always mind-blowing for me, from heaven, the One who rules over all things, over heaven, over earth, over the angels, over men, the One who reigns from the throne is a man. The God-man but a man. And we looked several weeks ago at Psalm 8. You remember that man there is being described as being made for a little while lower than the angels, and then he's exalted. Well, how's he exalted? How do you have a status that's lower than the angels, and now he's exalted? Well, it's because of Christ. Christ has become man, has become exalted at the right hand of God, and now a man who represents all of God's people, who is our King, reigns on our behalf over all things. 
He's reigned in the past. He reigns now. He will reign forever as the perfect God-man. He is king over all creation, and he carries out all of his decrees unhindered. For the righteous, for those who trust in him, he, he tests them. Which is to say that he, he refines, he proves them. Like a fire refining gold, our exalted king refines his people. Which means that for you and for me, friends, whatever hardships come our way, whatever trials, whatever persecutions, whatever revilings, whatever afflictions, none of it is without purpose. Our afflictions are not given to us because God hates us. On the contrary, for those who are in Christ, our afflictions are given to us always because He loves us. Now in the moment, in the midst of the afflictions, it may seem painful. And you wonder, of course, how could this ever be for my good? Romans 8, 28 gives us that promise. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But when you're in the midst of the all things, and the all things are really bad, you may wonder, how could this possibly be for my good? I want you to think that if gold could feel, do you think that it would feel that the refining fire melting away its dross would make it beautiful? No, it would feel the scorching heat. And that's it. But when the refining is finished, what do you have? Pure gold. That shines in the sun. Or when Joseph was sold into slavery, do you think that he thought the iron collar around his neck was good? No, of course not. He's in the midst of affliction. And I'm sure that in the moment it was impossible to see any good. But when the testing was complete, when he continued to entrust himself into the hands of God and God exalted him, it was then that he could look back and see how even the worst evil done to him was for his good and for the good of his kinsmen and for the good of the glory of God in upholding His words. Some of you may be even now in the midst of a great affliction and all you can see is what Jeremiah called terror on every side. If you belong to the Lord, if you are among the righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, 
then what is the affliction? Think about it with the eyes of faith. It is a testing. You're being refined. It hurts. But what's on the other side? When the dross is melted away, what do you become? You are made beautiful like purified gold. You have to see the affliction through the eyes of faith or you will despair. And you will be like these counselors saying, let us flee. What can the righteous do? I'm reminded of what Peter said to Christian slaves who suffered under the hands of wicked masters, not good ones, those who beat them even for doing good. And Peter tells them, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. God is not blind to the suffering. It has not escaped him in any way. He sees it. And he will punish the evildoer. He will punish the wicked master. But as the slave endures, as he suffers for doing what is good, God upholds it, sees it as a gracious thing, as a, another picture of the gospel of Christ and what Christ has done on behalf of wicked men. He conforms the suffering servant into the image of Christ through a cross which is what Jesus said would happen to all his disciples. You come after me, you take up your cross, and then you follow me. You deny yourself. No one's saying at any moment in time that it's going to be easy. But God sees it, and he will uphold his justice and he will make you shine like refined gold. Psalm 11 verse 5 says of God that his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. But he will use the suffering that the wicked bring to make you beautiful and holy and blameless before him. So, what must you do? 
by faith, you have to look upward to Him who sits on His throne in the holy temple. And you have to trust that He reigns, that He's working His will for your good and His glory. And you endure. That's your call to look to Christ in the midst of suffering. Which leads us lastly to our third point about seeing with the eyes of faith, which has to do with the longing of faith. The longing of faith. Faith is, by its very nature, a matter of looking beyond what is right in front of us and hoping in the future that God has promised to come. That's what it means. That's what it is. And we can pray for it. We can hasten it. We can lift up our cries to God for God to come and to save the righteous and judge the wicked. And this is what David himself is doing in the psalm. He's, he's praying to God. He's calling upon the Lord to carry out His final judgment. To bring that day wherein the wicked will be brought to an end and God's people will be saved. He prays for judgment to come in verse 6. He says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. He looks back at what God did to the wicked in Sodom and Gomorrah when he rained fire and sulfur down from heaven and destroyed those cities. And he looks back to see what will come again in the future. What happened to those evil cities is what will happen to all the ungodly who do not repent of their sins. They will suffer the same end. That's the end of their story. Isaiah likewise speaks of this ruinous end to those who rebel against the Lord when at the very end of his book, the final verse, he says that their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And similarly, in John's vision of the final judgment in Revelation 21, he says that the portion of the wicked will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. David, in faith, is looking beyond the present prosperity of the wicked, discerning their final end and calling upon the Lord to bring it down. Faith looks to God as the one who will carry out justice because faith believes in the Word of God which says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We don't carry out the vengeance. We entrust the righteous vengeance into the hands of God. And we call upon Him to bring it. To bring justice to the land. But faith also looks at the salvation that will come to the righteous 
who have patiently endured and who have hoped in the Lord. Verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. That is the promise. The unbreakable promise that is given to the people of God. We shall see His face. If God has spoken, it can't be undone. That's how we view the world. This is the end. This is how it culminates. Now, at the present moment, we see Him with the eyes of faith. By the Spirit, through the Word, and with Christ dwelling within us, we look to God in faith, seeing Him as in a mirror dimly. But then, as Paul says, we will see Him face to face. Whether in a year or in 10,000 years from now, at a certain point, when the last among the elect of God hear the Gospel and believe it, when the Gospel has been preached to all the nations and God has gathered all of His sheep from all over the world and throughout all generations, the trumpet will sound and the King will return in the might and in the glory of the armies of heaven and He will kill death and Hades and all the wicked with the breath of His mouth. He will banish unrighteousness from the land The curse from the ground will be lifted. The ground will be set free. The garden of God will be planted. And it shall cover the whole earth. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their forehead. That's what David's looking at. He's going all the way to the end of the story. The day that comes when the righteous, having been delivered from their own sins by a suffering Savior who is exalted to become King, then comes to bring about the fullness of their adoption as sons to lift them out of their cursed bodies and remake them with resurrected bodies so that they will be able to gaze at His face and not die. You will be covered with holiness so that you can behold the Holy One of God. And from that moment on, you will live in the light of His presence forever and ever, and all sin and all death will be gone. The way of the wicked will perish. The righteous will endure. They will be saved. They will be glorified. This, friends, is what we look to. This is what our longing is for. It is to see 
God. And if we trust in his Son, and if we trust in his word, our longing will be fulfilled. God will keep his word, and we will reign with him forever and ever. That's the logic of faith. You're not fixed on everything that you see right now with your eyes, but you fix your eyes on Christ and Him who reigns forever and ever. As Christ had His gaze fixed on the glory to come, He despised the shame of the cross. He endured it and was then exalted. That is the path that he calls each of his people to walk. To endure the cross, to despise its shame as you look beyond and long for the glory to come and God will fulfill his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are a great and a righteous God. You love righteousness. And even when it seems as if the wicked are flourishing, you are carrying out your perfect plans. You are redeeming your people. Your gospel is going forth. Your people, your sheep are being brought into your fold. You are making note of vexation, of mischief, and at your appointed time, all of those who've been united to you, to your Son, will reign with him forever and ever as the world is remade, as the new heavens and the new earth are fixed eternally in righteousness. Father, I pray that we would always have this mind within us, that we would have these eyes, that whenever in your wisdom, your disciplining hand comes and affliction comes, that we would be those who look upwards to see him who reigns from the throne, that you would grant us by your grace perseverance to endure all things, to believe all things, and then to be saved forever and ever. We ask in Jesus' name.